Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, please welcome in Julia Lemberski, who is a principal at Frontier Ventures and co-founder of JJ Studio. Julia has been a marketing and operations executive at companies such as Uber and Rocket Internet for the past decade, in addition to being a serial founder and angel investor. She currently works with over a dozen high-profile, hyper-growth startups to help them scale their growth channels and operations as part of her firm, JJ Studio, and recently joined the VC fund Frontier Ventures, investing in U.S.-based early-stage startups with network effects. And we have quite the wide-ranging conversation around her journey and the turning points that got her to where she's at today, but also a lot about hyper-growth startups and what entrepreneurs should be considering and thinking about as they're trying to scale their business. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, please welcome in Julia Lemberski. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Great being here. Yeah, thanks for joining. Thanks for coming to share your expertise and there's a lot of cool uh, avenues I want to drive down with you here if we can, but I, I want to start because I think it's always a fun place to start, especially a lot of folks listening in, getting started, and maybe coming from other careers or they've had different experiences in life. I'm curious if you can kind of share, and maybe it's a turning point back from when you were a child, maybe it was later in life, but how did you get down the path of entrepreneurship, of starting businesses, of those type of things? Um, because that, obviously that's led to a lot of what you're doing today. Had had that been something like inception in your head since you were a kid? Was that something you've always wanted to do? Or is there some area or two where it kind of curved you off one path and got you onto that path? Anything you'd share as a starting point? Yeah, it's a great question. One I definitely think about a lot, uh, kind of reflecting back on my life. I can't say that there is like one specific pivotal point or something Um I think any type of success or, or, you know, major change that happened or a new avenue went down, like the seed for that had been planted probably decades uh, before, if you really untangle it. I think probably a big part that heavily influenced all the different things I'm involved with in this, these days is kind of growing up in post-Soviet Union Russia, where, you know, there was kind of a wild, wild west of opportunities and and people just not quite knowing what to do with it all. So there was a lot of entrepreneurial energy and you know, kind of being born into that situation and seeing how, you know, my single mom was trying to make ends meet within this entrepreneurial uh, kind of greenfield opportunity, you know, being raised partially by my grandmother who, you know, like rather than, I don't know, uh, <laughs> spoiling me with desserts and, but, you know, kind of how you would consider a grandma maybe like in an American setting. It was more of, you know, picking me up from kindergarten and taking me to the markets where I would stand for hours and hours, like selling her self-made hats or, you know, it, it was just, oh, you know, wow. from very early age on, hey, we got to make ends meet. We got to be creative. Um, you know, there's no good structure to support, um, you know, 
our our financial situation. Like we need to be creative, we need to be entrepreneurial, uh, and also the faster I sold those hats, the sooner I could go home. So it definitely helped me with sales training at that point. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I actually a different experience for sure. But uh, you know, where I I started work when I was like eleven. So in the U.S. and probably similar over there, you you, you used to, and I'm I'm 38, so I don't mind sharing my age. I uh, I was delivering when you actually deliver papers, you know, like the newspaper in the morning. So I was doing that since 11. I'm I'm actually curious to to throw this back to you and what you learned from selling the hats of the um, the the kind of the empathy, the emotional intelligence, like those type of things. I I didn't realize until later in life I learned those through those experiences as a kid, like recognizing how adults made decisions and all that stuff. Did, did you have similar experiences when you're selling those hats, like able to, to pick that stuff up? Absolutely. I think probably the biggest lesson at this very, very early age, we're talking, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, um, is, you know, getting rid of that fear of rejection at a very early age. Um, and also understanding that success is a numbers game. You know, the more you try things, the more people you approach, the more sales you start, you know, to try, the more likely you are to succeed. You know, like if I just timidly stand behind the market stand and wait for someone to approach me and, and potentially buy a hat. Like we're going to be here, you know, until very late today, I'm not going to watch my cartoons tonight. <laughs> you know, whereas yeah. if I go out there and, and very kind of vocally and proactively approach people, and even though I get rejected a lot of times, so it can hurt and it can be annoying, but you know, the, the rate of success is going to accelerate with the more things I try. And that's definitely been very true for, you know, the last couple of decades of my career. So how did you, so that's one thing as a kid kind of going through that and have that experience. When did you actually decide at what age were you to start your, your, your own business? So I, I had businesses without realizing that's what they were already at a very early age. Um, so for example, when I was maybe 11 or something, I would get some old magazines for free and then cut out different like posters and stories of what I heard with my market research would be you know, the hottest superstars at the moment. And I would just resell those packages on the playground. Again, I had no idea this is a business. It just felt like a smart thing to do. I did a similar thing with like um, kind of college prep questions where I would, you know, crowdsource answers and then resell booklets with those crowdsource mm. answers, you know, to other students. And I, I always thought I would want to go into business because I heard it's a cool thing, but I had no idea what it is. I thought, okay, I, I need to buy a suit, but like what, what, what it actually looks like day to day, no clue. Um, that changed when I was 15 years old. Um, a friend of mine actually gave me the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad um, by Kiyosaki. Um, that was my first introduction of, you know, like, what is the mindset of an investor, of a business owner, you know, that it's much more about a mental state than it is about any particular thing that you do professionally, because obviously there are so many different types of businesses like, that you cannot generalize it um, to that extent. Um, and and probably from that point on, so at age 15, I got that book when I was getting on a plane to fly to Ohio for like a high school exchange here. I lived, uh, it was my first time in the U.S. Um, I lived in a small town in Ohio. Had a lot of free time, didn't have much to do without being able to drive and stuff. So what I did was read. So that was kind of my first initial book that I got. And then I just started reading, I don't know, probably 100 books or something on the on the realm of business and, and psychology of money and economics within that one year. And that was really the starting point. So then when I came back to Germany um, a year later, uh, basically at age 17, I started doing some internships in the world of startup uh, while um, you know still going to high school, and then as soon as I turned eighteen and I was legally allowed to do so in Germany, is when I registered my first company. Oh, wow! How many companies have you had? Um, three that are decently successful, and then a lot of um, you know, obviously, especially in the world of startups, it's not really a company; it's more about like a 
you know, MVP building. So I've built dozens and dozens of MVPs, even beyond that. Like I did a lot of proto-selling, like this year alone did probably a dozen or so proto-selling different ideas where, you know, I would just get someone, let's say on Upwork or something to like render some images of what a product could look like. Like one of them is like laptop light, for example, like, you know, we all, all, all are on these Zoom calls and sometimes the lighting is an idea. So you can like clip on this thing on your computer, just an idea that I had, right? So we just put together some images, bought the domain, you know, ran some Facebook ads over it, and then we saw, okay, people really need this, they're buying it, so now we're looking into developing um, this as a kind of a business. So the three businesses that I've had that were kind of more successful, they were more so kind of studios um, that, you know, work through a lot of ideation of different products and then also work with other companies. So my most recent company, um, JJ Studio, actually mostly works with hypergrowth startups to help them um, accelerate their growth, um, but then also in parallel, always innovating, always trying to find some other exciting opportunities, um, you know, to create great services and products. So I got to ask, what do the businesses that maybe weren't as successful or ideas that didn't spawn into businesses, what what was it? Was there one or two or a couple of things that you learned as why they there was failure points? Yeah, I mean, definitely my favorite part about the failed businesses is the learning opportunities. So actually this very first business when I was 18, again, didn't know much about business still. I tried to do a lot of learning, felt very confident as sometimes you do at that age, like you can take on the world. So, you know, raise a little bit of funding and I created um, a couponing platform. You know, this was back in the day when I think Groupon had just started emerging and there's kind of online couponing sites, um, you know, just started emerging. So it became a really hot area. And, um, you know, my business had looks more like a Groupon today in terms of like you can, for example, buy a deal, use it right away. Like, you know, things that just weren't back then, um, you know, in the industry. And so I felt really confident about having a great selling point. I was myself responsible for kind of signing up, um, you know, partners and, you know, as a CEO, kind of running the company and doing the marketing, et cetera. But then there were many areas of the business that I just had no idea about, you know, being 18 and not having exposure to, you know, how do you build a tech platform, right? So I had to rely on, you know, co-founders and, and bringing on people with that expertise. But then again, at age 18, one of the skills you don't yet have super strongly developed oftentimes is your understanding of you know, people and who you can trust and how you can validate um, trust, especially in something as important as co-founders. So that was actually the reason why that particular business, even though we grew pretty quickly to become the third biggest couponing site in Germany at that point, in the end it collapsed because I had partnered with the wrong people and, you know, especially on the kind of tech side of things, um, things really toppled over and there was no point kind of rebuilding at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but again, amazing learning experience, learned a lot about people, um, went on to do some courses in Stanford uh, the next year to kind of understand a bit more about the technical infrastructure side of things, just to fill in some gaps. Um, and yeah, and definitely though understood that this is a lot of fun to be building businesses from zero, you know, taking things out of your head and putting them in the hands of consumers despite not having a lot of means, despite being 18 years old, um, you know, like this is something that I want to be partaking for the rest of my life. Mm. It, that's really interesting that, you know, you, you kind of don't, you, sometimes it helps you when you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. And then sometimes obviously it's, you know, <laughs> not the, not the best, unfortunately. Um, what, so if I, let me ask you a few questions on this and I'm going to pull you down a rabbit hole here. So, you know, we'll, we'll go deep on this. Um, because there's a lot of folks out there that they want to start a business or maybe they have started a business, not seeing as much success or not maybe seeing as much growth as they want. Can you define something first for me? Because this actually comes up. I'm in an enterprise sales role and you know, been thinking about this a lot, obviously, the different products I've sold, but around product market fit. 
mm-hmm. right? Something that I think gets thrown out there as a term, but a lot of people don't even know what it is or why it's important. Can you start there? So if someone's out there has a business, can you talk a little about product marketing fit and why that's so valuable? You know, I maybe have a slightly different view on this than what is currently the acceptable definition. So I guess the definition these days is, you know, when, when customers start really like running at you and, and, and you, you, you're getting more demand and you can really supply with your small little MVP or whatever you have at this point or just the idea, you know, whenever you you know talk about it to potential customers, they're like, yes, here's my money, like just please build it. You know, like this is usually some of these indications where you're like, okay, I'm really onto something. Mm-hmm. You know, in the real world, things don't, usually look like this. So I've been part of quite a few hypergrowth startups um, and many of them very successful, like Uber. I've worked there for many years and I've launched initiatives like, you know, Uber Eats and, and Jump Scooters and, you know, some other things that, you know, became very successful, um, you know, but I cannot say we ever had this moment where we just completely could be hands off. Like we don't have to worry about the demand side of things anyway. You know, we just, we build it and they will come, you know, it, it just unfortunately doesn't quite right. work this way. And I think some of these kind of publicly stated definitions, they might be um, discouraging to some entrepreneurs because they feel like they haven't reached that stage. So what's the point of continuing, right? What's What I usually see more happening with the companies that I consult with or that I've built myself is, you know, obviously if you see, if you're trying and trying and trying and trying and you just don't get any response, you know, that's a clear indication. But if you get some response and if you get a lot of feedback on how you can improve and if customers are actually, you know, uh, open to engage with you in this feedback and actually you have their interest enough that to where they can criticize you because if, if you launch your product and you don't get the criticism like one of two one or two things is the case right like either um they don't care enough like your product just doesn't matter to them it's not even worth their time to tell you how to improve it um or you waited way too long and probably already passed you know the point of when you should have launched right like they they say that you know you need to be embarrassed at your first launch really to kind of understand right, it's a right. part of launch so so for me product market fit really is more the stage of you have your first couple of early adopters and they're willing to engage with you be it in a feedback session be it as angel investors oftentimes you said as well again depending on what the product is or you know if it's a um you know I don't know, social network or something, if it's really more of a numbers gate, you, you'll see it more in retention metrics. But having that first indication that people are willing to give you their time, because that's the most valuable resource. And once you see that, again, it's, it's not like the it's it's one and now you can just scale. Like there's you just have that insight that now you can, you know, start this very difficult process of uh, of, of hyper growth where you know this inflection point really that that a lot of these companies that I work with um, you know get to of you know how do we now scale our operations, how do we now find growth channels that go beyond just the early adopters and allow us to scale to kind of amass the bigger market? How do we structure a team in a way that, you know, our top performers don't leave and everyone's motivated and working hard? Like, in my opinion, this is oftentimes the hardest part of a life cycle of a company. And when a lot of things unfortunately go wrong, because I've seen a lot of companies fail that had this great product market fit indication, but at this pivotal point is, you know, where they unfortunately couldn't survive beyond. And do you find it's, at least again, conversations I've been in or, and, and folks I've, I've talked with a lot is around, I don't want to use the word scared, but like not even reaching out to your customers and clients and having those discussions. And because I, I find it, it's not just the product market fit. And maybe this is part of it is you want, I, I think by having those early conversations, you figure out your actual ideal client, like who are the best clients to work with? And that actually can change 
you know, the product, the, the, the application, the widget, whatever it is, yes, great. But I really think it's like learning, okay, these are the best clients that we need to work with. I need to find more people like that. Cause you may find like, Ugh, this is not the right person either. Right. How important is that? And those conversations early on. I mean, ideally you should be co-creating the product with your clients. It shouldn't be that like, you know, you built the product, you kind of, you know, disappeared in, you know, your mom's garage for two years, you came up with this thing, like, here it is the world, bye bye, I'm going to go buy the next thing. Like this model does not work. Like, especially how iterative and, and, and kind of fluctuating the, the world is today and industries are, how quickly things change. Like you need to have some core customers on your side. It could be as advisor or again, angel investors, whatever it might be, but you know, you need to be absolutely having these conversations with as many people as possible. And I think a big part of why people don't is, again, that people are just afraid of rejection, right? So, so you know, asking, reaching out um, to ask for feedback or, or being afraid to hear tough feedback on this baby that they're building, what they're creating, right? It's, it's just too painful for, for many people to do. But unfortunately, you know, without doing so, um, you cannot have a successful business in my opinion. Yeah. And I think part of it now we can, depending on the type of business, like how many, you know, Uber as an example, right. They're getting thousands and thousands of signups maybe early on when some businesses, it might be dozens and dozens, right. Different. But I even think those early client conversations can actually help with a referral business and getting more clients, because again, they have a network of people that are probably similar users. So being able to grow that way as well, if you reach out to your, your customers and actually have good conversations, they're going to want to, if they're having success, they're going to want to tell it to other people generally. I don't know. I found that as well early on, get the, the referral business as well. At an early stage, again, you are working with your early adopters. So this is the best time to be kind of kickstarting your referral engine later on will be much harder because like, you just won't have this much of connection uh, with these customers and they won't be you know, as much uh, rooting for you as, as, as uh, you know, some of these early ones. But the other thing also why it's really important to be close is that you also have to be always dog-fooding your product, right? You always you need to be close to the customers, but also as a user perspective. So you know, Uber is a great example. You mentioned, you know, even though it is one of those like huge marketplaces when there's you know, millions of people on either side, you know, when we were launching Uber Eats, like I would go out and, and, and deliver meals, you know, ever so often. Or, you know, when we were building Uber Works, same thing, you know, like, you know, picking up shifts, like clocking in when I, you know, go to work, you know, taking up some of these warehouse shifts, like really understanding what these um, users of the marketplace are going through. And this also really can, you know, set you apart from many competitors, because if these clients see you out there, let's say on the warehouse floor, you know, speaking with the staff when we were building Uber Works, for example, and figuring out, how can we ensure your adult show up rate is going to be improved? Like really, you know, understanding, living the problems and working together to solve them. Um, that it, it's, it's really magical kind of what a product superiority um, and competitive edge you can get this way. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great thought there. Um, what are some other things? We, obviously, we're talking about product market fit a little bit, but mistakes that you're seeing, again, maybe you've made these, but mistakes that you're seeing with a lot of the folks that you're working with or helping out early on in the company, maybe that they could avoid and they could kind of get around or maybe they're, they're already in it, but mistakes that you're finding uh, coming up the most. I think just to start very broadly on like a personality level. Um, and again, mistake that I have made myself is um, thinking that to be a successful entrepreneur, I need to be like others. I need to be mass market. I need to be like in that mind frame, um, you know, and, and not leaning into what differentiates me as a person enough. Um, and I think that's kind of true. If, if you 
look at a lot of these people that have really shaped the world, like they were definitely very different in how they approached things, how they thought about the world. But at the same time, we all have this instinct to assimilate very quickly. And like, I've had this throughout my whole career, like whether it's being like in high school, like, oh, I need to be, you know, one of the cool kids or, or, you know, later on, like working for some of these large tech companies, like, oh, I need to, you know, lean into this tech bro culture and assimilate into it rather than, you know, taking my unique viewpoint of, you know, being like maybe a minority within a specific configuration and how this can actually help advance the business. And I, so I think that that's just something on a kind of a, a very wide view of, you know, as an entrepreneur, like don't feel like you need to be what you think other entrepreneurs are like, like really lean into and don't be afraid of, of, of being different. Um, more specifically, when we're talking about, um, startups, I think the, the big mistake I see founders do over and over again is um, underappreciating the things that are maybe a little less sexy or less fun to do, but like things like org chart, right? Like no one wants to sit there and think through org chart design for, for months and months. But for example, what happens and oftentimes in this hyper growth phase that when you start getting kind of overrun with success and you took on investment funding and you start bringing on a bunch of people and then you have to pivot the product or something else, you know, obviously the market is fluctuating, something changed and then you need to restructure the team. And so then you need to rethink again how, how you rescramble the team. And basically what oftentimes happens in this hyper growth phase is there are painful reorganizations, there are layoff rounds, there are, you know, top motivated people um, that are the highest performers of these companies they're leaving, um, maybe to start their own thing or something else. So all of this kind of HR and org chart related mess um, is in almost every um, hyper growth company is, is going through that. And it's super distracting for the founders at that stage. So I just recommend for founders like put, you know, take 5% of what this future distraction is going to be in 10 months or whatever, and just spend this time now thinking through kind of quarter by quarter based on different scenarios. How can you, you know, reorganize who do you want to move into what role? Like there's a lot of, you know, exercises you can do around this kind of org chart design to save yourself a lot of trouble during a later stage in which it's going to be much more critical. And again, a lot of companies have unfortunately failed just because of this one thing. Um, can I, can I pause? One- can I pause for one second? If I can ask a, a follow-up question on that, do you do you recommend also on like um, like contracts or agreements? getting those locked in as well early on instead of just, Oh, I'm going to partner with my buddy. We're going to start this business. And then six months down the road, they have no contract. They have nothing about terms. And then if, as business starts coming up, that could, I don't know if that throws a monkey wrench. Is that a, is that something folks should consider or is that not as important? It depends. I would say on like how closely do you know this person? Um, I mean, obviously your co-founders, uh, early stage employees, I mean, you should probably consider it as much as getting married, right? They're probably going to spend more time with these people than with your spouse, right? So yes, it makes sense to to either have a really good prenup or a contract or something, or really, really have known these people for like a really long time and know how they react in stressful situations, et cetera. So one or the other, but of course, it's always more preferred to do the latter where it's, you know, it's a person that you've known, you've seen working, you've seen failing, you've seen stressed, you've seen go through tough things and know how they're going to react for you know, a decade or something, that, that's the ideal scenario. And if you have that person, then I would not waste too much time on bureaucracy until you even know if you've got anything there. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. All right. So you were going to say something else. Sorry, I had a, I had that thought. I was like, well, we're on this track. Let's keep on it for a minute. <laughs> so again, one of the things I do a lot these days is consulting with a lot of hyper growth startups. So I could be talking about this for the full podcast. So do cut me off. No, that's, that's fine. This is great. Maybe just one one last thought is on the growth uh, channel side of things. Um, there's also where a lot of mistakes are being made because 
you know, these days there seems to be like a defined suite of growth channels. Like let's say, oh, I have a startup, so I have to do Facebook marketing, right? And then oftentimes you won't have the resources. So maybe we'll go to an agency and have them do it and, you know, just give them a certain percentage of whatever you raised. And like, it's, 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 it, that, that feels like the natural thing to do, but oftentimes that's a mistake, to be honest. Um, so what I've seen is that, especially at the early stage, there is a much wider suite of channels that, depending on your company, users will react very differently to. And some of these channels that like, you wouldn't necessarily think of uh, in the first place, for example, direct mail has proved to be very, very effective for a lot of the early stage and hyper startups that I've worked with um, over the past couple of years. So rather than locking yourself into, oh, I got to do this Facebook ads campaign and got to throw in you know, a third of my marketing budget into that, rather build an engine of rapid experimentation at this early stage of like, mm. here are the, I don't know, 15 possible growth channels that we could do, you know, speak with other founders, speak with, you know, just try to get as many of these ideas and then figure out an iterative process of testing through them as much as possible and see where do you get some sort of response. And it might be that these channels are going to be very different from, you know, what it's going to look like at the later stage of the company when you want to scale and automate much more. But at this very early stage, I don't feel like, you know, just because everyone's doing cold emails, like I'm just going to do that and leave it at that and see what happens. Hmm. Yeah, they, that goes back to the, you don't know what you don't know. So it seems like, oh, this is the easy route. Everyone's doing it. But you're, you're kind of, hey, think outside the box, experiment, test and taste a little bit. And, and you never know. You may surprise yourself. Exactly. Right. What, um, so I want to talk about investment for a minute of when. So this is one of those things where, you know, I see a lot of folks that want to get investment or need to. It's because it's a capital intensive, maybe endeavor. They don't have any revenue yet, but they need, so they need money to keep growing it. Is that when someone should think about looking for investors? Like when should, I'm going to ask just a very naive question. Like when would someone look to get investors or bring money in out besides their own? Yeah. I mean, I think we are living in this incredible time where starting these new businesses is just so inexpensive that, I don't know, you save up maybe five grand or something and you can get yourself to product market fit on almost any idea. And I just mentioned earlier this example of this like laptop light. Yeah, so this could be in theory a more capital, you know, intensive product because it's, you know, it's a hardware, you need to, you know, uh, get it designed, get it patented. It could cost a lot of money, but you don't have to go this route. You know, you can do this proto selling, which I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So you can product market fit, you can get actual, like, you know, revenue, actual customers clicking to buy this product and validate how it should look like, you know, A-B test, what colors to offer, like whatever it might be, you can have all these questions answered without having to spend a single dollar on actual like developing the product and all of these kind of CapEx related um, kind of expenses. So that would be my first step before you look into any sort of fundraising, you know, figure out like what is, how can you distill down the answers that you need to prove a product market fit um, and, and test them out as inexpensively as possible. I mean, if it's a B2B SaaS, it could be as easy as, you know, creating like some, you know, Envision mock-up or something or Figma file of like what it could look like, you know, get yourself like an Upwork designer or something for a couple hundred bucks to mock it up and then just go out to, you know, 15, 20, um, you know, companies in that space and, and, and get them to sign some LOIs, you know, based on, um, you know, this click-through model that you put together for a couple hundred bucks. But in any case, some sort of validation like this, which is fairly quickly and fairly inexpensive, needs to happen before you start approaching investors. Um, that's the first step. The second step I would say is um, a lot of amazing people are doing angel investing now. Angel investing has become incredibly accessible. Um, you know, the amounts have shifted downwards. Um, 
the kind of requirements, the, the, the whole bureaucracy behind it, you know, like also through like tools like SPVs and stuff, like you can really, you know, very cleanly get a lot of great strategic investors into your cap table very easily. Um, and, and, and the critical part here is strategic. So you will want to, at the very at the very first investors in your company, find people who are, you know, employees at your future, uh, at your future uh, customers or who are, you know, domain experts in something that you want to build, like whatever it might be, just identifying these people on LinkedIn or wherever you want to and just presenting them this opportunity of like, hey, I have these 20 signed LOIs or I have this, you know, data of, of people actually clicking through and buying this product that is not yet designed, however, and kind of doing kind of your mini crowdsourcing, just collecting, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 checks from a couple of these people that can actually help you advance it. And then after that only is, I think, when it makes sense, like once you've collected this money, built the actual product and started getting some revenue for that product, that's when kind of venture um, institutional investing makes the most sense. Well, and one of the things I wanted to underscore goes back to rejection where you mentioned, you know, because I think a lot of folks, they want to build that early model, the mock-ups and all that, but they want to kind of do it by themselves and, and, and you know, pick and choose what they want instead of, to your point, I love it is, go out and get, you know, ask 15, 20 people. Now you only might get, you might get one or two that, you know, say yes and 18 say no, or maybe it's 180, who knows, but being willing to go out there and share kind of your embarrassing, if you will, moments early on to ultimately you get that one or two person, they may be willing to pay some dollars to actually fund some of the development, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, I think every entrepreneur should go through some form of sales training in their life, whether that's the accidental selling hats with your grandma or whatever it might be, because as an entrepreneur, you need to be selling it, right? You need to be having these conversations with customers to validate if your product actually has a need. Um, you will be reaching out to hundreds of VCs at a later point and rejected by probably 99% of them, but you only need the one, right? Like that's, yeah. that's an important thing to understand, um, you know, just kind of how, how the numbers work out. Uh, in this kind of sales situation. Um, and a lot of people, unfortunately, have this inhibition of like not wanting to do sales, not feeling comfortable doing it. But um, again, it, it has to be overcome, if not for my also like later internships um, at, uh, in sales at some other startups, or I remember even like doing like cold calling, um, you know, for one of the, uh, at Rocket Internet, I had just, you know, had like a before the start of my work day, um, you know, to kind of just help the sales team, just to get a list of a couple dozen people and just cold calls from the companies. Like it was super uncomfortable. I just, I still like, cringe at the memory of it. It was my first experience doing cold calls, but the numbers speak for themselves of like what we were able to achieve from that. And most importantly, the skills that learned to now not be afraid approaching, you know, a hundred people on LinkedIn, asking them a question and being happy if I, you know, get one that says yes and 99 rejections. Like that mindset, just any, every entrepreneur needs to develop that. Well, and I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't uh, kind of circle, highlight, underscore that more. Again, someone that's been in sales for a dozen years, I, you know, coaching entrepreneurs on sales and stuff is no one remembers that phone call you just made. They forgot about you two minutes later. We think they're going to remember us for like a year and they're going to talk bad about us. Like no one actually remembers. If you call them back in 10 minutes, you'll be like, who was that? So I, I think, yeah, just kind of getting over like, Hey, it is what it is. You took your shot. You kind of did your thing. And as long as, you know, I think it goes back to as long as you were ethical about it, professional, did it the way you want to do it, that, hey, you should be happy. Everyone's not going to, just like you don't say yes to everything. Some people just aren't ready. You aren't the right time, whatever, you know? So yeah, I mean, you, are, you are doing this for a greater purpose, right? You are doing this, for example, to solve a real problem in an industry, right? To remove some inefficiencies or like whatever it is, like, mm -hmm. If, if that's what you need, then just keep reminding yourself, like, wh why is it 
like what what do you do it for um i know especially like there's a lot of studies for like women having sometimes a harder time with things like asking for something or negotiating etc um and, and so, so one to, uh, kind of common trick um that is being used is just you know like when you do it, ask ask kind of on behalf of someone else in a way. Just kind of trick your mind to kind of it's not me asking, it's not me doing the sales pitch, but it's more of you know like I'm doing it on behalf of I don't know my family, my company, whatever it is. You need to have this greater reason to over help you overcome that fear. Yeah, well, and and I've also find to to that point, it's like if you believe in what you're doing, if you believe in that mission, right? You're almost doing a service by calling these individuals up right? You give, you're giving them that opportunity to better their life. If you, if you really believe in what you're selling. Yeah. So I think if you take that approach, it helps get over some of that early fear as well. Um, I want to, I want to keep on this, uh, this area, but kind of diverge slightly because you mentioned earlier about going out and, you know, getting VC funding and all that. Talk about pitching, you know, cause that's a form of sales, right? So people are, you know, pitching any, what, what do you see good? Mm-hmm. And you know that the best folks are doing, and then what are some things folks should look to kind of get out of their pitch decks, get out of their, uh, their conversations? Yeah, I think, um, that's a good question. So I think oftentimes when you read about pitch decks and elevator pitches and all that stuff, it, it almost feels like you're being trained to present like a nice talk, like, a you know, just like sit down and listen to me talk for half an hour about how amazing my company is. But in effect, like when you're actually speaking to a VC, it's a conversation. So I think that's a mistake that a lot of founders do. Like I've had quite a few conversations now that I'm kind of uh, investing as a VC as well, where I would just quietly sit there for an hour while someone's ta- talking at me. And that that's mm. not, not the best kind of views of anyone's time, right? right? Like, you know, any good VC will have read your presentation before the call in any case and done some of their own research and other stuff like that. So, so assume that they, they kind of know what's going on and just have a nice conversation. And in that conversation, you know, obviously you don't have a ton of time, maybe 30 minutes to an hour with someone in that VC firm. Like most importantly, especially when it's an early stage investment, make them understand why you, because again, a good investor will have an understanding somewhat of the industry. Again, as a VC, you see, hundreds of deals per, per per week, you know, thousands per month oftentimes. So generally we already know what is a good product or what is an attractive industry. The question we don't know is why you, and, and so I would recommend with any conversation with a VC, like make that the focus, you know, share some personal stories, maybe that, you know, how you overcame, you know, difficult times, how you showed resiliency, how you showed creative thinking. Um, and I, I don't see enough, um, you know, founders do that. They feel like they need, you know, have numbers more speak for them mm-hmm. um, but at a very early stage we're talking about kind of seed and series a there won't be that many numbers and and, and really the investor is betting on you as a person so to so help them out by showing why they should do so mm. is there any and i'm putting you on the spot here i don't think i prepped you with this but is there any like questions they should be asking for the the uh the investors Anything that would maybe set them apart to, because again, to your point, it's instead of them just talking about the business or themselves or whatever, you know, you want to have that hot potato kind of going back and forth, if you will. Anything specific you'd share? I mean, I think it's, um, there are so many investors out there these days and like so much money generally in the market. Um, What I don't like as an investor is if I get a completely kind of cold approach, Um, you know, like literally you can see that it's copy pasted. Some people don't even like change the name or call like sir or like it's it's really like so that they're we talked about numbers game before and to some extent that's right but 
for me as an investor, I want to understand why did you choose me as well, right? Like, why do you see that I would have a certain perspective on your business or on you as a founder? Or, you know, do we have a similar path maybe to some extent? And so, you know, if you as a founder, um, you know, take your time to actually research, like, how does this fund invest? Like, what's the fund's philosophy? You know, look into their partners and through their team and make this connection of like, you know, like, oh, we care about the same things or, or you know, speak speak to 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 me as an investor as a person rather than just as a bag of money right so i think i think that's a big part to kind of again let your personality shine through make this connection make me see the world through your eyes a little bit more and definitely gonna make me feel much more comfortable about investing than a cold outreach email mm, that's a, yeah that's a good point how do you um uh, again, well, you know, I appreciate you kind of going dive into some of this stuff and we can keep going on that route, but I'm just kind of curious yourself because you've started businesses. You've obviously, you have a lot of different stuff you're involved with. Do you have anything like, how do you keep throughout the day, different routines or habits, things that kind of not only keep you motivated, but keep you on track to hit all these probably various goals you have as a, as an individual? Again, I think the main thing is this mental model. Um, and you know, so in terms of like quotes, like things like, you know, whether you can or cannot either way, you're right. Like by, by just filling so many things into my day, I don't allow myself to come to a point where I think, oh, maybe I can't take on one more thing or maybe I can't do this. You know, so a big routine for me is, you know, saying yes to things very quickly when an opportunity presents itself and figuring out later how to do it and not actually wasting time worrying about all the things like why I shouldn't do it or what could happen later on. Um, the other thing I do a lot is set deadlines, even if there are none, uh, like, you know, one kind of fun personal project I did this year is buying, you know, this fixer upper that I have right now in upstate New York, uh, never having ever owned a house or understood kind of what a fixer upper is. Um, so going into it pretty blind, but setting myself a deadline of like in two months, I have this housewarming party. I, you know, had my friends buy tickets to fly in for that date. You know, like I have two months to figure this out. Uh, so that I just didn't have time to to panic and, and figure out, oh, how do I actually going to make this work? I just, you know, had to get to to execution. Right. And, and so I think that's just a big trick with, you know, how I right now fit a lot of things into my day is just I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about how to do things. I just have so much going on that I just have to execute. I keep very you know, close track of my notes and of my to-do lists, you know, keep myself organized and then just, you know, understand that I just need to like knock through these to-do lists in order to be able to, you know, come out on top. Do you, well, well, let me ask you one question first, because I actually love that, what you mentioned with the the timeline, that's kind of uh what is that Parkinson's law, right? Where it's, what is it? Is it time expands the field of work needed for its completion? So like if, if you said, oh, it'll take me a year to do it. Well, yeah, it'll probably take you a year. But if you say three months, you'll figure out a way to get it done in three months, right? So it's almost like, yeah, that mindset kind of getting yourself in the right, you know, frame of reference. Do you do any type of, um, like calendar blocking or anything like that to get your tasks or to-do list complete? So the, the maybe a little interesting backstory here is um, when I was uh, 13 years old, uh, we moved from like a small village in Germany where I had like pretty poor education up until that point. We moved to Munich uh, and my mom put me into like a science and mathematics school and Basically, I had about a two-year gap in terms of knowledge level. Um, like, you know, we were on a third year of physics. I've never had physics before. So it was, you know, a lot to learn. And I, I had six months that the school gave me to catch up that were in which time they wouldn't grade me and like the, the, it wouldn't have an impact. So I had six months to 
learn everything I could learn about learning. So I went to the library and I took out all the books on you know time management and to-do lists and prioritization and Pomodoro techniques, like you know, everything that was out there at this point and just like you know, experimented a lot um, starting at this age of 13. Um, and, and so then for the past, you know, <laughs> time that happened since then, like I've continuously been exploring different productivity tools and, and methodologies. And um, so to then answer your question on the calendar blocking, I've done that for some uh, points of time. I'm not currently doing it. Um, right now, what's working really well for me is, you know, speaking about this kind of timelines, I budget my time. So for example, I put together a to-do list and I say, okay, this is, the things I want to do today, I am giving myself, I don't know, eight hours, 10 hours, whatever it might be. Um, and then I, I budget per to-do item. So like this email, five minutes, this uh, draft for this project proposal, 20 minutes, like whatever it is, like I give myself a budget and I actually time myself. And when the time's up, time's up. Like, you know, I, I don't have more time, my budgets run out and I need to submit whatever state it is in then, or I need to, you know, if absolutely necessary, um, put it on a to-do list for another day. Um, but typically what happens here is that, you know, I'm able to share maybe a slightly more draft version with whoever I need to get feedback. And then by the time it lands on my to-do list again, I already have so much more to go on. Um, so so that that's a really helpful kind of trick I've been using um, over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, you instead of the, it, it kind of goes back to like the meetings, like someone schedules an hour meeting. It's like, well, can this be done in seven minutes? Do we really need the whole hour? So I kind of like that you're, you're, it's almost like you're budgeting money. You're saying, this is how much I have available. I can't go over it. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. That's pretty cool. Well, so uh, this has been great. I could probably talk to you for hours on this stuff, but uh, I'll get you out of here. Um, but I'm curious, and you could take this in whatever you want. So I kind of do this open form, uh, but you have a post-it note. You're going to give it to one of your, your hyper-growth startups. They're going to put on their computer to get started, kind of give them that motivation each and every day, some inspiration. What would you put on there? What would be their quote? Any 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 point of reference? Anything for them that you'd say kind of to get started and, and to keep moving forward? Probably it would be something along the lines of don't accept no. Um, so kind of going back to this rejection, um, fear of rejection conversation, just kind of again, looking back on my life, probably um, the hardest part of getting to where I am today is overcoming naysayers, right? Even though I had learned from a numbers game, like for clients and stuff like this, like no is acceptable. But what's, what's the bigger problem is hearing no, or you can't do that from people who, you know, for example, were experts or my parents or who were leaders in the companies I worked at. So we can't really ignore those rejections in a way, right? Um, and, and, and that's really the harder type of rejections to ignore, but ones that you need to learn to deal with um, as you, you know, become a successful entrepreneur or generally, um, you know, happy, successful person. Um, like just to give a couple of examples, um, you know, I had a lot of, I think, advantages growing up in this post-Soviet Russia from an entrepreneurial perspective. But then being also a woman um, there, you know, I kept hearing, you know, women have no place in business, um, you know, like you're 25, why are you going getting another degree? You should be having kids, like et cetera, et cetera, right? Like you, you hear this from the closest people in your life, like your family and stuff, it starts rubbing off. Um, similarly, for example, when I was 23 years old and I became the GM for Uber Eats in Russia, again, like everyone around me was experts, right? They're all like twice my age. They're like really senior, serious people. And so whenever I would hear things like um, I was trying to work out a deal with the uh, CFO of McDonald's Russia. Uh, and he just sent me back an email with 18 reasons why this deal will never happen. You know, it's, it's hard to work through these things. Like ultimately I, I was 
able to get the confidence to push back against this expert expert and you know close that deal and and, and it was super impactful transformative career experience but but this is really probably the hardest thing and the one that I think you know most entrepreneurs struggle with is you know how do you deal with no when it comes from people who you look up to and who you cannot ignore is that part of again going back to mindset is that just you kind of saying no I'm gonna I'm doing it like I'm I'm kind of you know going to be stubborn if you will and go forward or is that part of is there some decision making process in there because I imagine I mean we look where the world is today a lot of people they're like yeah you know what I can't do it yeah. and they and they don't do it so what where do where's the the pendulum swing the other way what 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 are people what should they be thinking about I mean I think what happened in my life like why I was able to deal with some of these rejections and no's um, is. I just started very early on doing things that other people told me I couldn't. Um, it's, it's, you know, starting from like really stupid small things. Like, you know, I had like a little deformity in my foot and like my doctor when I was like 11 told me like, oh, poor girl, she'll never be able to wear heels or something, right? Like, I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so for like a year or something, I wrote like wore high heels to school. It's like stupid little things like this up to like really big things for you know, when I was 22 years old and I became, um, you know, I, I was this interim CMO for a large company, was the you know, market leader in 24 countries. You know, everyone who was reporting to me was like twice my age on average. And again, you should, people telling me you cannot do this, you know, like the, the people out and started managing, they just became outraged. Like, who is this girl? But then I, I, I saw very quickly that the results I was, you know, giving this company were, you know, far ahead of anything that my predecessors were able to deliver. And so by repeatedly sh- showing to myself and reminding myself that, hey, even though these people you should be in theory listening to, these experts are telling you you cannot do this, you still do it and you prove them wrong. This makes it so much easier. You know, every every time you hear this no or this rejection, it becomes easier over time to say, but hey, there was this one time where yeah. similar, I was in a similar situation and I proved to them that I can do it. So just, I guess, starting this process as early as, as possible of, of proving people wrong and, and and reminding yourselves that you did in the past makes it easier to do so in the future. Well, yeah, I love that. I mean, you're really proving yourself wrong because we have these self-limiting beliefs that we're putting in our head, whether we put them in our head or other people growing up. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of the whole thing like someone that runs a marathon. It's like, oh, I never thought I'd run a marathon. Well, you run it. And then you're like, what other stuff can I do that I never thought I could do? So yeah, that's a great point. Um this is this has been great, Julie. Like I said, I could I could probably chat with you for hours on this. I'll let you go though. Um, where could everyone say hello, find you online, look up what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, LinkedIn is a great way. Um, otherwise, if you have a great startup or if you're interested in the world of investing, you can always reach out to me at jl at frontier.ventures. That's my kind of VC side of things. And then if you have already an existing startup and hyper, hyper growth stage, I encourage you to check out meetjjstudio.com, which is my current company where we work with a lot of these hyper growth companies to help them scale. And yeah, otherwise just, you know, find me on my personal email as well, which is julia.limbersky at gmail.com. Julia, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing a lot of your wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a great time. But I hope you all enjoyed that great interview, and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along in your day. If you were looking for some more resources, some more insight, you know, inspiration, things that get you going a little bit further on your journey, 
feel free to head over to my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter that comes out. That's more of a digest of a lot of information that I discover throughout the week, whether it's a new podcast I listen to, or maybe it's a great follow online that's very insightful, or a video I came across. I put that in a digestible form that you get once a week as well as I blog three times a week. And these are very micro-type blogs, one- to five-minute reads. They hit your inbox Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning and maybe give you a little dose of inspiration to get you going on your day. So feel free to sign up for those if it's something you might find as value. Thanks again for listening in. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.